You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. The Advent and Christmas seasons bring certain ways of relating to Jesus into view, certain roles that He embodies and holds are brought into focus for us in this season. Son of God is perhaps one of the most prominent ones, but Son of Man is prominent as well. Our music tells us that He is the Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. We celebrate these titles and we give thanks for them and we focus on them because they tell us about who Jesus is and how He desires to relate to us. A King whose reign is forevermore. And yet there are ways of knowing Jesus and ways of relating to Jesus that are revealed in His incarnation, in His birth to Mary, in that manger centuries ago, that are significant and essential in Scripture, but often neglected among us. One of those, in the opening chapters of Hebrews, is that He is our brother. I found that we're not always comfortable with that. We're more comfortable with King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And I wonder if that's because it creates some distance between us and Jesus. If He's the exalted Son, maybe we don't have to be too close because who knows what will happen if He gets too close. And so sometimes we find a bit of anxiety or a bit of concern that this language of brotherhood of Jesus as our brother just maybe denigrates Him or brings Him down too low and we struggle with that somewhat. And yet, the Scriptures insist that Jesus is relationship to us as our brother is utmost is crucial is essential to our salvation to our sanctification to our growth to our faithfulness to continued and sustained victory over sin and temptation. And these two dynamics, these two identities, these two roles, these two ways of relating that Jesus has to us, His unique, exalted status as the Son of God who reigns over all things and... His brotherhood, where He is likened to us, where He descends to find us where we are, must be held in tension. 
in balance together. And when we do that, when we allow the Scriptures to shape the way that we see and relate to Jesus, we discover that Jesus' uniqueness, and He is unique, we discover that Jesus' uniqueness does not mean He is unlike us. Jesus, in all His uniqueness, does not mean He has not participated in our flesh and in our blood. Hebrews begins with His uniqueness. So we will too. First chapter of Hebrews gives us this stunning vision of the glory of Jesus, doesn't it? God has spoken in many ways. But now He's spoken in a decisive way final, climactic way. He's spoken through the prophets, but now He speaks to us through His Son. And His Son, Jesus, is not just any man. He is the exact imprint of God's very being. We find in the opening verses of Hebrews the Christmas story, don't we? God become man. Word made flesh. A human being who bears, who embodies the exact nature of the eternal God. Hear these words again. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by a Son, and we know His Son is Jesus. And what do we need to know about Jesus? He is the heir of all things, through whom He also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. This is why when we say the Nicene Creed, we have the kind of language that He is true God of true God. Light from light eternal. The Spirit and the Son with the Father are worshipped and glorified as one God. And Jesus reveals that one God. These opening verses really introduce themes that will recur throughout Hebrews as a whole. Jesus is the one who sustains all things, who has made purification for sins as a great high priest. He now sits at the right hand of God the Father, the majesty on high, and He, we are told, is superior. Superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For the next few weeks, we're going to spend as much energy as we possibly can considering the unparalleled excellency of Jesus. His excellency is described in several ways in this chapter. We've already recognized that He is the incarnate Son of God. 
Hebrews wants us to know that the incarnation doesn't mark a beginning for Jesus. In verse 10, we are told that He is the Lord who founded the earth, that the heavens are the work of His hands. He is not only incarnate Lord, He is eternal Creator. He is the pre-existent One. Before anything was made, He is. He is without need. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing eternally in perfect Divine, triune, self-giving love. And He is in the overflow of that love makes all things. The heavens and the earth are the work of His hands. And He's not merely the Creator from eternity past. He is eternal in the future. Like a cloak, you will roll them up And like clothing, they will be changed. But you are the same. Your years will never end. And so, in these opening verses, the Hebrew, the author to the Hebrew, the letter to the Hebrews, quotes several psalms, a few other things, mostly psalms, together to give us this stunningly expansive. Picture this vision of who Jesus is as incarnate Son of God who is also the pre-existent Creator who is also the eternal Lord of all things. The excellence of, excellency of Jesus is magnified also through a contrast. Maybe you picked that up. Hebrews is quite interested in the role of the angels. And how Jesus is unlike them. How He is different from the angels. Angels were significant in uh, Jewish thinking in a variety of ways. And Scripture uh, tells us that they have certain responsibilities, not least adorning and worshiping God in His throne room. When Isaiah entered into the throne room of God in his vision, he saw seraphim. Mighty, angelic figures with six wings flying side to side around the Holy One declaring His holiness. What a place of excellency. What a privilege. What an honor to serve beside God Himself in His heavenly throne room. And yet Jesus, we are told, has been given even a more excellent place. He doesn't simply attend and serve God at His throne. We are told He is seated on the throne at the right hand of majesty. Uh, Jewish thought, and we see this in the Scriptures, Envisioned angels as having authority over nations. This nation had this angel. That nation had that one. But Jesus, with His name that is of greater excellence, has authority over every nation, we are told. He is unique. In the Incarnation, 
He is unique as the Creator. He is unique as the eternal sustainer of all things. And yet, in His uniqueness, He is not a stranger to us. He was made low for us and for our salvation. His uniqueness does not mean He is not like us. And as uh, the letter, it's really kind of a sermon, moves into chapter 2, we hear this quote from Psalm 8. Beginning of verse 5, we are told, God did not subject the coming world. Talking about the new creation. place where the rule of Christ is visibly manifest. God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking. That's the topic of the conversation here. But someone has testified somewhere, and then he quotes Psalm 8. What are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? You've made them for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. We haven't seen that come to a realization yet, but we do see Jesus. And then he picks up the language of the psalm that describes humanity and attributes it to Jesus. He was made a little lower than the angels for a period of time. Not forever, but for a period of time. He descended. He stepped down from His heavenly throne. Not because He needed to, but because He desired to redeem a family for His Father. We don't see all of these things subjected, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels and is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The language the psalmist uses to describe humanity is the language that Hebrews uses to describe Jesus. The exalted Lord the eternal Creator, motivated by perfect love, became like us. And He did it for a very specific purpose. He did it so that He could be a merciful, sympathetic, and faithful intercessor. I don't know if you notice, but the first chapter of Hebrews and the second chapter of Hebrews are really narrating a conversation, aren't they? First chapter is everything that the Father says to the Son. The second chapter tells us how the Son replies to the Father. So the, son, the Father says to the Son in chapter 1, verse 5, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And I will be His Father and He will be my Son. And uh, let all God's angels worship Him. And, and, and your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. And sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And these are the words that the Father speaks to His Son. Words of pleasure and words of joy and words of acclamation and words of inheritance where He is giving Him everything. All things belong to Him for He has made them and they are His. And then the Son replies. 
And we talk about how Jesus is our great high priest, and we talk about how Jesus is our mediator, and how He's praying for us before God. Have you ever stopped to ask, what's He actually praying? We talk about how He intercedes before God on our behalf, but what are the words that He speaks? We are told precisely what He says of us in Hebrews chapter 2. God says to His anointed, sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And His anointed responds, chapter 2, verse 12, I will proclaim your name to My brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put My trust in Him. And again, here I am with the children whom you have given Me. These are the words of Christ spoken to the Father about you and Me. Come, be seated at My right hand. Come, enter into your inheritance. Come, My beloved Son, whom I have begotten. Come. And Jesus replies, here I am with My brothers and My sisters. He doesn't want to go without you. How excellent is He? How excellent is He? He is our Lord. He is King of Kings. But that's not all that He is. He's our brother. He steps down to where we are to take us to Himself, to unite us to His covenantal love, to bring us into the family of His Father. Now there are things that must happen for Him to do that. We are told that He must make atonement. Verse 17, He had to become like His brothers and sisters in every respect so that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. We are told that He tasted death for everyone. You can see this central idea that runs throughout Scripture that God takes sin seriously. And that where there is sin, there also must be atonement. But the atonement Jesus makes is no temporary thing. It's not an annual offering or a monthly offering. Because He doesn't bring some animal as a sacrifice, the blood of bulls and goats, as 
we are told later in Hebrews. He enters into the sanctuary with His own blood. Shed that He might taste death for all of us. To make atonement. To reconcile us to His Father. Not simply that we might be His servants, we are, but that we might be God's sons and daughters. Jesus' brothers and sisters. And as He marches into the presence of His Father who loves Him with His own blood on His hands, He says, here I am. And the children you have given me. He not only desires to reconcile us to God, He also desires to free us from the abiding darkness, much of which we may not even know about yet. Chapter 2, verse 10, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom all things exist in bringing many children to glory should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now that might have caught your attention. In what sense does Jesus, the pioneer of our salvation, need to be made perfect? Come back to that in a second. For now, pay attention to verse 11. The one who sanctifies, the one who makes you holy, Jesus. And those who are sanctified all have one Father. Jesus does not reconcile us to God so that we can stay put. He reconciles us to God so that He can reproduce His life and His character in His brothers and sisters to sanctify us. He is the Holy One and He is making a holy family. That involves acknowledging the reality of our need, doesn't it? It involves acknowledging the reality that we are in a desperate situation. That there are things in our hearts that He must deal with. And habits, and mindsets, and He desires to free us from those things. And He desires it to the extent that He has become like us to do it. That's what Hebrews means when it speaks of Jesus being made perfect. Hebrews says elsewhere, He was tempted in every way without, but was without sin. And this idea that Jesus needs to be perfected certainly doesn't mean that He's a sinner who needs to be fixed. What was He lacking? What did He not have? What, 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 what was not there before Bethlehem? What did the exalted second person of the Trinity not have before He was born of Mary. Well, he didn't have a body that was marked by frailty, did he? 
And he didn't have a stomach that could grow hungry, did he? He didn't have eyes that could weep in grief before Bethlehem. He didn't need a mother to feed him or a father to watch over him. To say that Jesus was made perfect is not to say that He needs to be fixed. It is to say that He needed and desired to enter into human experience. To become like us. To assume our humanity. To understand our frailty. To understand our weakness. To understand what it's like in the moment of temptation when everything is on the line and we feel that pull and we feel that draw to love ourselves and to to look inward and to chase after our own darkness he knows what it feels like and he knows what it feels like in that moment to be faithful and that means brothers and sisters that he can help us in moments like those and i wonder when the last time we were in one of those moments might have been we want to do well we want to honor jesus We want to be the kind of parents who embody the love of God to our children. But our fuses are only so long, aren't they? We want to be the kind of co-workers and colleagues who who live a gospel-saturated life in the workplace. But you know how they treat you out there. It is crucial, friends, to know that we need His help. That we are lost without Him. That we are desperate. And it is crucial in discovering that truth to then discover that the exalted one was made low to participate in your experience so that He can be sympathetic, so that He can be merciful, so that He can say, I know what it's like to be in that place. I know what the angst feels like, and I know what it feels like to be pulled, and I know what it feels like, and I can help you. He is unique, and that means He can help like no one else, but His uniqueness does not mean He's unlike us. He is sympathetic. He is our brother. And He's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of us. Some families have that family member. I hope your family isn't like this. (laughs) The black sheep of the family We brag on the one member, the other one we try to hide. 
bit of a blight, something of an embarrassment, never quite made it as well as others did. Hebrews says that family dynamic is not a part of God's family dynamic. Jesus, because He has participated in flesh and blood, is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. He is not and never will be ashamed of us. And He knows our darkness, doesn't He? He knows our frailty. He knows our weakness. He knows how we stumble. And He knows our habits. And He knows our struggles. And yet He doesn't want to hide us from His Father. Instead, He says, here I am with my family, my brothers and my sisters, the children you have given me. And that calls for a response, doesn't it? If Jesus is not ashamed of us, then surely our response to Him should embody that same character. When we are outside these walls, when the climate feels hostile towards our faith, when we are worried that someone will think we are religious fanatics if we try to get a word in for Jesus, can we not remember that He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters? And in that instance, embodying His character, growing in holiness, sanctification means we are not ashamed of Him. It's easy to fall into that place, isn't it? People will judge me. I wonder if we can confess that and offer ourselves to Him. That's really what's happening in Advent and Christmas. He has come, and He will come. He has been made low. He has been exalted. And this season will have been a success if we can gaze upon Him And see with new eyes the glory of His excellency. How excellent is He! The Lord of heaven laid in a manger for us and our salvation. How excellent is He! Perfect in power, made low to suffer death For us and our salvation. How excellent is He! Does He not deserve our whole hearts? Our whole being? 
excellent is he? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hall United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.